my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. I think everyone who is interested in Tibet has been able to read about life in Lhasa because most of the foreign travelers who have visited Tibet have made Lhasa their objective and have written books about it, so I need not dwell upon it. They have described the almost continuous round of celebrations and ceremonies from one year's end to the next and the elaborate parties given by the richer people, their beautiful and decorative dress, the holy walks around the ring road called Linkor, and the picnics by the river in the summer, which were perhaps the most popular pastime of all. Indeed, the travelers may have been able to describe these affairs in greater detail than I could offer from my own experience, because of course I did not share in many of them myself. Whenever I took part in ceremonies, I naturally became the focal point of them, and the essence of those ceremonies was the reverence which the people showed to me. Therefore, whenever I watched ceremonies in which I had no part, such as religious dances in the Potala or dramatic performances in the Nobulinga Gardens, I watched from behind gorge curtains so that I could see without being seen. But I would like to add one general comment to the travelers' tales. We Tibetans love a show or a ceremony, whether it be religious or secular, and we love all ceremonial and elegant dress, and, which is perhaps even more important as a national characteristic, we love a joke. I do not know if we always laugh at the same things as Westerners, but we can almost always find something to laugh about. We are what Westerners call easygoing and happy-go-lucky by nature, and it is only in the most desperate circumstances that our sense of humor fails us. But Lhasa was the only place where social life was so elaborate. Outside the city and the few other towns and the monasteries, the material life of the people was very much like the life of a peasant class elsewhere except in the degree of its isolation. The distances were vast and there was no communication whatever except by male runners on foot and on horseback. In the mountains the climate is very harsh and most of the soil is poor, so that the population was sparse and life was solitary and extremely simple. Most people in the distant marches of Tibet had never been to Lhasa or even perhaps met anyone else who had been there. From year to year they tilled the earth and bred their yaks and other animals and neither heard nor saw what happened in the world beyond their own horizon. I believe there are many such people not only in Tibet but in all the poorer countries in the world whatever their system of government. I do not pretend that every single Tibetan was a gentle and kindly person. Of course, we had our criminals and sinners. To mention a single example, we had many nomads, and though most of them were peaceful, some of their clans were not above brigandage. Consequently, settled people in certain neighborhoods 
had to take care to arm themselves and travelers in such places preferred to go in large companies for protection. The people who lived in the eastern district where I was born, including the Kampas, were law-abiding on the whole, but they were the kind of people to whom a rifle is almost more important than any other possession as a symbol of manly independence. Yet the sense of religion pervaded even the wildest places and most of the wildest hearts and one would often see its symbol too in the poorest tents of nomads, the altar with the butter lamp before it. During my education, I learned very little of any other social system but our own and the Tibetans in general, I think, regarded it as the natural state of affairs and never gave a thought to any other theories of government. But as I grew up, I began to see how much was wrong with it. Our inequality in the distribution of wealth was certainly not in accordance with Buddhist teaching and in the few years when I held effective power in Tibet, I managed to make some fundamental reforms. I appointed a reforms committee of 50 members, lay and monk officials and representatives of the monasteries and a smaller standing committee to examine all the reforms that were needed and report to the larger body and thence to me. The simplest reform was in the collection of taxes. The amount of revenue required from each district had always been fixed by the government but from time immemorial it had been understood that the district authorities could collect as much extra as they liked or as much as they were able to pay their own expenses and salaries. As this was permitted by the law, the people had to pay up and I was not very old when I saw what a temptation it was toward injustice. So I changed the whole system in consultation with both the cabinet and the reforms committee, the district authorities had to collect the exact amount required and remit it all to the treasury and they were paid a fixed salary by the government. This pleased everyone except some district authorities who had been making more money than they should. Even more fundamental reforms were needed in our system of land tenure. The whole land of Tibet was the property of the state, and most peasant farmers held their land under a kind of leasehold directly from the state. Some of them paid their rent in kind with the proportion of their produce, and this was the main source of government stocks which were distributed to the monasteries, the army and officials. Some paid by labor and some had always been required to provide free transport for government officials and in some cases for the monasteries too. My predecessor, the 13th Dalai Lama, had abolished the system of free transport because it had become an unfair burden and he had fixed charges for the use of horses, mules and yaks. But since then, prices had risen the fixed charges had become inadequate and the right to demand transport had been given to far too many people. So I ordered that in future no transport should be demanded 
without the special sanction of the cabinet and I increase the rates to be paid for it. It may be misleading to say that these peasants were tenants. It was a mere concept that the land belonged to the state. A peasant's land was heritable and he could lease it to others, mortgage it or even sell his right to it, though the right to land was rarely sold because a peasant's first duty was always to hand on the land intact to the next generation. He could only be dispossessed if he failed to pay his dues or produce or labor, which were not excessive. So in practice, he had all the rights of a freeholder and his dues to the state were really a land tax paid in kind rather than a rent.